if you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, and this is somewhat of a primer study, preparing ourselves for the retreat that is to come on September 15th or 17th, where Pastor John Smith will come and teach us on how to display Christ in the family. We'll just do a short study from Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, focusing on verse 4, just to prepare our hearts, to prepare our minds for the the tremendous study and time of fellowship we'll have in two weeks. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, many of you know that two weeks ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go up to Spokane, Washington, and to minister God's Word at Christ Our Hope Bible Church's family camp. There are about 150 people there, but maybe 90 adults and 60 children. Uh, There, if you have four kids, you're a small family. So my wife and I had a very inferiority complex with just two in our household. There was one family with eight boys, and they wanted more. I mean, eight was a little bit on the large side side for them, not too large. When we were invited to speak, they told me that we'd be staying with John and Elsie Smith. They're the parents of John Smith, Peter Smith, and Jennifer and um, Annette Smith. And, uh, you know, they are a godly family. He's been an elder at Grace Community Church for many years. He's been an elder for over 30 years, longer than I've done ministry, almost as long as I've been alive. He's been an elder, a godly man, a captain of the L.A. Fire Department, retired. Um, he's got I mean, rental property that he had here now up in Spokane so that he will be able to continue to support his family um, and just have an uh, inheritance for them. A very wise man, very man of the word, man of discipline. Wakes up four in the morning. He still goes bike riding in the morning. Wakes up four in the morning and goes uh, exercising. And we knew we'd be staying with them. Elsie's a godly woman as well. So, and they said, come as early as you want and stay as late as you want. Stay a year or two, you know. And uh, we kind of took, up, took them up on their offer. We, want, we knew we'd be staying with them. And I don't get a lot of opportunities to spend time with older men and women who have been walking with the Lord for many years. And I knew. I mean, I'm, I'm desperate for wisdom. I'm desperate for insight, understanding. I'm just trying to figure out how life works, how to apply scripture. I'm still trying to learn how to relate to my wife in an understanding way and to be loving her as Christ loved the church and washing her with the water of God's word. I'm a young father trying to understand how to really influence my daughters in Christ and and teach them about Christ, model scripture, and, 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 and discipline them according to the word of God. I'm still learning. I, I, I'm so desperate for wisdom that when, I, when, I, when we knew we could stay with them, so we went early and stayed late. You know, there's a fine line between staying and overstaying. And we came as close to that line without cro- Maybe we crossed that line. We're not sure. But I think we came very close. We, we, left, we got there Wednesday and left on a Thursday. It was a two-night, three-day retreat. Uh, just spent time with them. And uh, every, every morning we had breakfast together, and it was just Q&A time. It was just the whole time we were there, every meal was Q&A time. I mean, sometimes we would sit for breakfast and just talk and talk, maybe lunchtime, and we would have lunch, and just talk and talk and talk. And we were just uh, us asking questions, asking questions. I mean, we wanted them to come and have that time with everyone here at Cornerstone, but, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a man, you know, he's... Maybe up to 70 years old, right? Early 70s or late 60s. He's a man, a strong, godly man. If he says, you know, I'm a behind-the-scenes guy, I'm not a public speaker kind of guy, I'm not there to change his mind whatsoever. He says it once. I don't try to change his mind at all. I respect the decision. But uh, that's what we wanted. But for our time there, I had just a time with him. As I've shared with you, he's got uh, four children, Two are pastors. One's married to another, uh, Annette. And uh, Jennifer's married to a godly man. They have four daughters. So he has 20 grandchildren. That's amazing. So when you have godly kids, it's it's by God's grace, right? When you have kids that are Christians, it's not by works, it's by grace. 
And my parents are an example of that. You know, my parents can't believe how... <laughs> last Sunday, we're, we're talking in the car, going to my sister's, my, my niece's birthday. And she was saying, how, did we have, how do we have a pastor in our house? That's, that's impossible. It doesn't make sense. Like, and if you knew my family, you'd understand. I mean, my parents were like, you know, they raised me to sin. I mean, they raised me in sin, to sin. We sin together. I mean, like... You know, that's our family culture. It's, I can't believe. So it's by grace. If we have children that are Christians, it's by God's grace. We can't take any boast or pride in that. But if we have children that love us, that's works. Grace and works. Does that make sense? Right. Uh, if, we have, if we raise children, not only love God, but love us, that's grace and plus works. John Smith Sr. has four kids who are loyal to him, who love him, who um, make it a point to spend time with him, vacation with him, to serve him, to show their affection and love for their parents. That's by grace, but that's also grace plus works. It's because they put time in. They made sacrifices. They were intimately involved in every stage of their lives. They were godly parents. And because of that, um, they weren't provoked to anger. They're not embittered towards their parents. The opposite. They have this low, and as they get older, they have their own children. Their love and loyalty to their parents grows, and it goes on to the grandchildren. He has 20 grandchildren, where he's like a hero of the family. And he's a superhero. His mom's a superhero heroine as well, and that's by grace, by works. Contrast that to um, the angry kids that are so prevalent in our society, in our world, and maybe even in our church. Um, one of the angriest kids I ever saw in my life is Pastor Joe Jung. Right? He's serving as a missionary in Czech Republic. Man, he was an angry, angry young man. Um, first Sunday at our church, we, I think they played football afterwards. And like, he had the foulest mouth. He was cursing like a sailor. I mean, like people couldn't believe like how angry he was. A few years after he became a Christian, we're talking, just, you know, this fellowshipping, and he was saying, oh, my mom's like fixing all these holes in my house. We're remodeling our home. I'm like, you guys have holes in your house? Yeah, we have holes everywhere, in our walls, in our, in our bedroom, in our living room. And I said, what do you mean? And so there's like 14 holes. So who made these holes? Well, I did. Joe, what are you doing? Like making holes in your house. Very nice house in Cerritos. Or it's because I'd get angry and I'd punch the wall. And I'll punch the wall and I'll make these holes. Like, why did your mom wait all these years to fix these holes? And she's like, well, she, you know, her mindset was she would fix it up and I'll make another hole. And she'll fix it up she'll I'll make more holes. So she stopped fixing up the house and she couldn't contain me. So it got to a point there were 14, like, holes all over his house. I asked Joe, well, why is she fixing them now? And then she believes I'm a Christian. <laughs> she believes it's over. You know, my anger is gone. It's subsided. I have peace with God and peace with my parents. I mean, it was an angry child. And I, I could empathize with that because I was an angry child as well. Man, my teenage years, uh, I was so out of control. I was so lost in sin. Um, and I'll tell you, this is embarrassing, but hey, you know, we're family here, right? My second semester of senior year, my GPA was 0.60. I didn't even get a 1.0. I got a 0.60. I gave that report card to my parents. And they were like, all right, that's okay. Because was, I was so out of control, they didn't even respond. I mean, I, you know, I, almost didn't, I almost didn't walk. I had to take summer school, but I almost didn't walk in my ceremony. Because I was so out of control. That's how far away. You know, Asian, Korean parents and education. I was that far gone. I was an angry child. Now, what happened there? You know, we love our parents. I'm sure Joel loves his parents. But it's here in Scripture. The first place, first people to provoke anger in children is parents. They're parents. Parents, fathers, but it's it's fathers, but I mean, Paul's talking with both, about both parents. Parents, don't provoke your children to anger. And so, 
Parents, we should not do our children any harm. Above all, Paul says, if you don't do anything, don't provoke them to anger. You know, angry kids, I see them everywhere. I see them at restaurants. I see them at Disneyland. They're out of control. I see them where? Toys R Us. Right? You go to Toys R Us any day of the week, hang out for 30 minutes, and you'll see angry kids throwing temper tantrums out of control, spitting at their parents, slapping, punching their parents, throwing things around where parents can't control their own children. Some marks of angry children, um, they're hypersensitive. Their temperament is brittle, fragile. So they they lose control at anything and everything. So you have to walk on eggshells in their presence because almost anything can trigger them to lose their temper and to cause them to throw temper tantrums. So as a, as a parent, there's a bully in your house and because even though you're the parent, you're afraid of your child, the bully is you know, taking over the house. So you can't say no to your own child. You can't say stop. You can't say obey because you're afraid that they'll lose temper, that they'll get angry. Another mark of an chi- uh, angry child is they're selfish. They care about themselves. They're, they live to please themselves, and the world revolves around them. If they don't get their way, then they get angry. Another mark of an angry child is they're violent. They hit, spit, bite parents, grandparents, siblings, friends, neighbors, even strangers. They are violent towards them. They are disrespectful towards those in authority. So parents, grandparents, um, Sunday school teachers, school teachers, uh, police officers. Um, They're apathetic. They don't care. They're indifferent. They're so angry, they've lost heart. They don't care anymore. They don't care about others and they don't care about themselves. They're apathetic. And what happens to these angry kids? I went through this cycle. If left unchecked, untaught, untrained, not shepherded, they grow up to be angry adults where they rebel against not just parents, but against teachers and all authorities. They live to break the law. They live to mock those who enforce the law. They live to cross lines. They're stubborn, obstinate adults. They're uncaring. They're insensitive to others. They have no empathy. They don't have sympathy or empathy for others. They lack conscientiousness, lacking compassion for others. They grow up being resentful, lacking gratitude, and they grieve their parents. Proverbs 17.25, a foolish son is a grief to his father. Bitterness to her who bore him. And the worst of all, the worst consequence of angry adults is that they reject Christ. They hate Christ. They hate the Bible. They utterly reject, cold, hardened to the gospel of Christ. What is the root cause of anger in children? The ultimate cause, of course, is sin. Can't blame our parents, blame society, blame you know our upbringing. The ultimate reason, if you have anger in your heart, you got to say those magical words that we talk about all the time. It's me. The reason for my anger, my bitterness, my resentment, my sinfulness is me. It's because I'm a sinner. Because my heart rebels against God's word, God's sovereignty. That's the ultimate reason. But the circumstantial, practical, functional, triggering cause of angry children is sins of parents. Right? Sins of parents. And this is not to look back and blame our parents. God's sovereign. Up to this point, whatever has happened is exactly because that's how God wanted it. Right? This is exactly the perfect will of God what has happened in the past. The Bible tells us so that it might affect 
decisions we make now for our future, for our families, and for our children. The responsibility of angry children is laid squarely upon both parents. Both parents are culpable for they have raised angry children. And so as we consider um, the future of our families and future of our church, all we need to do is look. You know, husband and wives, look at your relationship. Is there bitterness? Is there un- are there unconfessed sins? Are there issues that you have not forgiven one another? Are there, is there resentment between the husband and wife relationship? And that's your future. You can have an angry relationship towards one another. You're going to be resentful and bitter and hostile towards one another. If you want to know the future of your family, look at your child now. Look at your children now. Do you see marks of just resentment, bitterness, and anger in their hearts? Well, that's the future. Look at our church. Do we see that in our church? And that's the future of our church. That is why Paul makes it a point to highlight this important command. Ephesians 6.4, parents, ultimately the father. The father, the buck stops with you. Men, the buck stops with you. It is your responsibility. So Paul doesn't use the word parents. He says fathers, though he's involving the both. Do not provoke your children to anger. Para orgaizo. On to rage, on to wrath, on to anger. Do not provoke them. Do not uh, produce, do not incur, do not cause your children to be angry. Now, how do parents uh, provoke anger in their children? Lou Priolo in his book, Heart of Anger, has 25 ways uh, parents provoke their children to anger. The book is worth, the cost, the cost of the book is worth it just for that list of 25. I would highly encourage it. It's a hard book to, I want to buy it for you guys, but it's hard to buy that book as a gift. You go, Here you go, here's a heart of anger for you. What are you saying? I'm angry, my children, so are my children. Right? So, no, no, no. I told him, actually personally, you should change the title of that book because I want to give that book as a gift just for parenting, but it's, it's a hard book to give. So buy it for yourself. Heart of anger, 25 ways. I'll give you top 10. Top 10 ways parents provoke their children to anger. Number one, lack of marital harmony. Lack of marital harmony. The greatest provocation of anger in children is parents who do not live with each other in the harmony that the scriptures provide and prescribe. Genesis 2.24 says, Two shall become one flesh. If a husband and wife do not develop this one flesh intimacy intended by God, then it has a direct impact, impact on the family. You can't separate your relationship with your wife and, or your husband and your relationship with your children. If the children look up to the parents, they don't see unity, they don't see harmony, they don't see genuine sacrificial love for one another. Instead, children see discourse. They see disunity. They see bitterness and hatred and arguing and divisiveness. They see just parents arguing and strife and fighting. And the child becomes provoked to anger. Right? I mean, think back when you were a child. What, what were one of the greatest fears in your heart? What caused you to, to worry and be anxious when maybe you heard your parents fighting? When you heard them arguing, when you saw them not getting along as a child, you saw that and it impacted you directly. Well, likewise towards our children. And, uh, you know, we can act in the church. You know, we can go to work and, you know, nice picture of our wives, an 8 by 10 frame it, and, you know, love mommy or something, and, you know, fool our coworkers. But we can't fool our own children. It's impossible. Right? They watch everything. They hear everything. There are no secrets. So you can't fake marital harmony to your own child, your own children. 
It has to be true. It has to be genuine. If they don't see their daddy loving their mommy and pursuing her, courting her and dating her, singing to her, buying her flowers, if they don't see their mommy respecting, honoring, revering their dad, and they see discord, it causes them to be embittered. Second way parents provoke anger is when they're raised in a child-centered home. Child-centered home. When the family revolves not around God, not around the authority of Scripture, not around the authority of parents, but the whole family revolves around the pleasure of the child, the joy of the child, and the child dictates the schedule of the home, the activities of the home, the discussion of the home, where the discussion of the home during dinner time should be mom and dad, we're talking, we're adults. Right? You entered our family. Our family didn't begin when the child was born. No, mom and dad, we loved each other years before. We had a great life before you were born. We have a relationship. And you joined our family. So you hear us talk about us. We don't just talk about you where you dictate our family. No, we talk about God. We talk about mom. We talk about dad because we're important and we'll get to what's important to you. But that's low on the priority list. But some families, you just enter into their home and see their living room. You know who is in charge. You look at their weekly schedule and you know who is the king of this household. You look at the, the attention of the mom her heart focus, her inclination of her heart, you know where her priority is. Is it with God? Is it with her husband? Or is it with children? You bring a child up in a child-centered home, and that child, child is, their foolishness is being nurtured. You know, a child thinks that they're the boss. They have control. They should be pleased. They should have authority. That their uh, will matters. So if they don't get their way, they get angry. That's foolishness. You're a child. You're two years old. Right? You don't make any money. You don't pay for anything. You don't do anything in the house. And you expect us to cater to you? Man, that's crazy. That's like Kim Jong-il foolishness, right? That's like delusions of grandeur. And yet if you cater to that child and say, you're the most important person in the whole world, and goes unchecked, becomes a 20-year-old, 6'4", 200-pound guy, that, that, that man is out of control because he thinks the world revolves around him and everyone should cater to him. What happened? Because he was brought up in a child-centered home where he was given authority and privilege that was undeserved and unearned. Proverbs 29.15 The rod and reproof gives wisdom. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. A child gets his own way and you let the child get his own way. The future is clear. There will be public shame to his mom. Third third way to provoke a child to anger is discipline your child while you're angry. Habitually do that. Habitually instruct them in anger, train them in anger, and discipline them while you are angry. Where discipline is vindictive, it's penalty, it's pure, just um, getting your own way, using authority for your own anger rather than in the way of the Lord. For Restore the relationship with God and with yourself. It's for correction. It's for training. It's for encouraging. James 1.20 Anger of a man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. So if we are angry towards our children, especially as we teach, train, and discipline them, it's going to cause them to be trained in that way, to act, to speak, to decide out of anger. Fourth way to, dis- to offend our children and, dis- and provoke them to anger, uh, being inconsistent 
in discipline and training. Being inconsistent in discipline and in training. So where um, mom and dad are not in unity in terms of discipline and training. Where one is the bad cop, one is a good cop. The common scenario is dad's the good cop and mom's the bad cop. The mom has to stay. She's, she's the one involved in the parenting and training of the child. And she understands the consequences of not correcting certain behaviors. Dad, he wants to come home and be a friend. He wants to play. He wants to make a mess. Say, oh, Mom, she's so strict. I'll let you have chocolate. I'll let you have candy. Here's some Coke for you. All right, great. A lot of sugar, great. I'm going to work now. You know, <laughs> 8 in the morning. Or I'm going to sleep. And there's division in the household. Mom and Dad, they're not united in how to raise a child. And they see that discord, and the discord is caused by the child, provokes them to anger. Or they vacillate day to day on what is and what is not punishable behavior. The rules of the home change depending on the mood of the parents. Instruction, training, and discipline changes depending on, you know, if you're the oldest, middle, or if you're the new baby at home. You sense the child sense favoritism in the household. That way you provoke a child's anger. This is a little side note. I thought this was very helpful to me. Um, how John Smith Sr. He really um, seeks not to show favoritism in the kids, even though they're all grown up. They're like they have their own children. Even now, he understands that if he shows favoritism to one family. Even now, even though they're 40 years old, you provoke a family to anger. So in terms of spending time, in terms of monetary help, I asked him about this specifically. He said, there's one family that needs help financially. I'll help all of them equally. So that I'm not giving funds to one family and saying, oh, don't tell anyone. It's just between us. Those secrets come out and it causes others. Even though they don't need it, if one family, one child needs it, they give it to everyone. So that they understand that there's equal love to each child, to each grandchild. There's no favoritism. Because even at that, that stage, favoritism hurts. Another way is double standards. Double standards. Children have dignity. They have an intrinsic sense of fairness and justice. So a parent who uses the Bible to teach, reprove, and correct, but is not willing to practice the same biblical righteousness in his own life, is not only a hypocrite, but in doing so provokes his children to anger. Hypocrisy at home, especially by those in authority, is a serious sin that will surely set a child on a road of anger and rebellion Parents have to maintain a sense of integrity or the standards that they set at home or the standards that they live by. They are, they are pursuing righteousness. That they are seeking holiness. And that standard applies to them and to their wives and to their children equally. Number six, being legalistic. Being legalistic. Legalism provokes believers to sin. You've experienced this as a believer, maybe. Another, maybe in our ministry, we've done this earlier on, where we impose um, extra biblical uh, you know, principles, extra biblical uh, values, uh, morals, ideals on you. And then, what is that? How do you respond in your heart? You feel ensnared. You feel fear of man kicking in. You feel you have to please man instead of God, and it causes you to stumble, maybe be provoked to anger. Same thing in the family. If you impose uh, strict, non-biblical, situational uh, 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 principles, and uh, you just apply them with such force, there is no freedom for a child to grow and to maneuver Number seven, parents reversing God-given roles or parents not fulfilling God-given roles when God's order and design for the family is violated, it's either reversed or not fulfilled. It has 
various and compounding consequences. Creates a home that promotes much frustration. If the father will not lead, if the father will not fulfill his role to provide, to protect, protect, to shepherd, to guard, to be the one disciplining the children, Hebrews 12. If the mom will not fill the role as a helper, will not submit to his own husband, will not have the priority of the home in place. Number eight, um, part-time parents. Part-time parents. Absent dads. Dads are always away. Dad is always away because of, you know, fill in the blank, because of work, because of golf, because of church, because of ministry. Dad is a pit stop for him. Home is like where he just kind of refuels and he's on to his real work. Dad's not around. And mom, she's working. She's outsourced the care of her children to extended family members or to complete strangers. And her priority is not at home. And the greatest influence of that child's life is not mom and dad, but is someone else. Provokes me to anger. I was working out this week and met a met a guy that I was in my youth group years ago, and he's a police officer now at Buena Park Police Department. And he was telling me that, that the, the gang, um, children involved in gangs, young people involved in gangs is out of control. You know, right here, Stanton, you know, Buena Park, Cypress Border, uh, he was naming all these, like, you know, watching gang. I don't know. If I heard of someone else, I'd, you know, come on. Right? That's like TV, movie stuff, but he's a police officer. And he says they're involved... Junior high kids dealing drugs. Junior high kids involved in crime, involved in major crime. And he said, James, you'd be surprised. These kids, they go to Sunny Hills High School. They go to Cypress High School. They live in million-dollar mansions in Fulton Heights, in La Habra Heights. Right? Their parents drive nice cars. They vacation in Europe. And are you surprised? Like, why? Did they grow? They, they're, they're not from, like, underprivileged, you know, low-class. Their parents are rich. How come they're in gangs? And he said, parents aren't home. Mom and dad are both working, double income. And these kids are given guilt money and guilt freedom. And they, they grow up with so much freedom. And they're not corrected. They're not, parents aren't around. And they're out of control. And so up to 18, they go to juvie. And he says, they call them that little university, little campus, where they learn how to commit more crime. And at 18, all their, the record is expunged. They get a new, you know, they're in a, they were amateurs, not in a pro league. They're, you know, uh, no record. They start all over, and they go to big campus. They go to uh, prisons where they learn how to commit more crime. And it's a circle, cycle of crime that's never ending. And he said it's all because parents are not being parents. Right. Number nine, two more, not encouraging your child. You're just criticizing your child. Constantly fault-finding, critical spirit. When a child feels frustrated, they can't please the parents no matter what they do. And so they become so discouraged, they become apathetic, indifferent, and they are provoked to anger. Right. Our Lord set a good example, a good model for us in Revelation 2 when he addressed the seven churches to each of them. Three commendations, three exhort, encouragements, three praises, and one rebuke. Right. That's good formula for ministry. You meet a brother or a sister, and you want to shepherd and encourage, disciple, mentor that person. Three encouragements, and then one rebuke, one correction. Same thing in the family as well. And the final one, this one's important for me. Not admitting you're wrong. Not asking for forgiveness to your child. The truth that the Bible is really the functional authority of the family is tested when, if the parents can go to their child and say, you know, son, you know, daughter, forgive me. I sinned against you. Uh, Daddy didn't keep his promise. Yeah, mommy, uh, she didn't do well here. Daddy, we, I 
spoke to you in anger. I was rude to you. All right, I disciplined your anger. Forgive me. All right. Confessing sin. Hypocrisy, laziness, selfishness, foolish decisions. Parents, we must not provoke our children to anger. And Paul says instead, it's the law of replacement. Put off and put on. Instead of doing all these things and embitter your child as Christians, instead, verse 4, bring them up. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord Discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word, first one is discipline, paideia. A comprehensive word. The word here means training of a child. Includes education. It includes instruction. And it includes discipline. It's the idea of instructing what is right. Training in righteousness. And correcting what is wrong correcting erroneous attitudes and behavior. This well-known proverb, Proverbs 13:24, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Right? If you spare the rod, you hate your son because you're loving yourself. Right? You're loving yourself. You're doing what is comfortable for you. You're doing what pleases you. You're imposing your standards, your desires, what is easier for you rather than what is best for your child. You're hating your son. But he who loves his child, loves his child's soul, loves his heart, is diligent to discipline him. Like discipline correction, they are restorative. It's not purely punitive. The punishment side is very small. The, the big picture is restoration. It's rescuing from danger. It's returning to the circle of blessing. Same thing in church discipline. People might think, well, Cornerstone Bible Church, you guys discipline your members. You guys confront sin. You guys go after people and correct them for unrighteous behavior. Yes, not because we want to kick them out of our church. No, that's the last thing we want to do. We go after people, and with our hearts broken, tears in our eyes, we beg them to repent of sin. Why? Because we want them to be restored to the Lord. We know that sin separates. Sin separates God and people. And sin separates people from one another, believers from one another. We cannot have fellowship with those who are in sin. So we discipline those. We correct and review, not to separate, but for the purpose of restoration, reconciliation. And that's the heart between church discipline and same as in the family. When Elizabeth sins against mom or dad, immediately there is a separation. There is a wall. If we don't discipline our daughter, that wall goes higher and higher, wider and wider stronger and stronger. And so people say, well, you guys are adults. You guys couldn't bear it. Yeah, you know, we should. But we're sinners. And when someone sins against me, I get angry. I get hurt. I get resentful. And that's hard when it's your own child. But you do. And you let that build and build and fester and it becomes the culture of the family. Next thing you know, everybody's angry. And you know what everybody's doing? Everybody's slamming doors, going to their corners, not talking to one another because everybody's angry at one another. But Elizabeth sins. And I take her aside privately because I want to maintain her dignity. I say, Elizabeth, A, B, C, D. You know, we love God. God says this, you sinned against God, you sinned against mommy and daddy, or you sinned against your sister, and the Bible says there must be punishment. And daddy doesn't want to give you punishment, but because daddy loves God, and because daddy loves your soul, loves you, we give, the, give you the rod, and we discipline her, and then we pray, I say, Elizabeth, I love you, she says, she loves me, we hug, she cries, and it's all good. She runs outside, runs to mommy. Mommy, forgive me for A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S. Right? All the way. 
Mommy says, of course, I forgive you. It's restored, and we're that peace is restored. It's the purpose of restoration. But if you don't go through that difficult process, then sin is still in the camp. This big elephant, right? We want to ignore it, but it's still here, and it's just growing larger and larger until it eats up the whole family. That is why Proverbs 13:24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 19:18, discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Do not be a partner in murdering your own child's soul by refusing to care for his soul by disciplining him. Proverbs 22:15. 20 to 15, folly is bound up in the heart of your child. Folly, foolishness, incredible pride is in the heart of your child. Unbelievable pride. Incredible. And if you don't do anything, that pride is going to grow. But the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him, even though you strike him with a rod, he will not die. They will act like they're going to die. All of a sudden they're sick. They're coughing. Right? They're acting like the world is over. Oh, like an act. Right? It's all manipulation. I've done it. Right? I've been there. If you strike him with the rod, verse 14, you will save his soul from hell, from Sheol. Proverbs 29.15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. And Hebrews 12.5-8, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. For the Lord disciplines those He loves. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, then you are treated as illegitimate children, not as sons. Illegitimate. So this is the illustration here. We have a foster child named Roger. We had a sexy foster child for two and a half months. Never laid a finger on them because they're wards of the state. They're under the authority of the California government, California state. We're not their authority. We're not their parents. So we were afraid. We disciplined Elizabeth and Emma, but not Roger or Ceci. And they'll think Elizabeth will feel less love. How come Ceci is not getting disciplined, but I am? And they'll feel like they're being unduly punished. But we know what's happened. The opposite has happened. Elizabeth and Emma, they feel, they know we're their parents. And they know they're our children. They're our legitimate children. Ceci felt like an outsider. Roger will feel like an outsider until we can adopt him and discipline him. Until then, because you don't discipline your neighbor's kids. You don't discipline strangers' children. Why? Because they're not part of your family. You don't want to bother with that. You don't want to get him. That's so hard. And so you feel like an illegitimate child likewise. Right? At our church, we've done this. There were guys and like five guys sinned and I rebuked four. The fifth one, I just didn't get a chance to rebuke him yet. I didn't have the opportunity. I, he was on the list. But he said to everybody, wow, Pastor James doesn't love me. Right? He expects me to sin. Right? He doesn't care for me because he hasn't rebuked me yet. I'm like, okay, okay, I'll rebuke you. Come here right now. Like, I, just, I was just busy. Right? I love you, brother. Right? Same thing in the church. If, if no one's corrected, I mean, will someone love you? Same thing in the family. If you don't discipline your child, right? you're treating your child as not belonging to you, not part of your own family. Right? Doug Wilson said, a refusal to discipline amounts to hatred and is simply a slow, cruel way for a man to disown his own child, clearly marking him out as illegitimate. It's a slow, cruel way of sending him off to foster care if you will not discipline your own child. So instead of provoking him to anger, raise him up in the paideia, the discipline and training of the Lord. So as you discipline a child, you, 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 you correct them, you rebuke them, you apply the rod, right? 
not punitively, but in a corrective way. And then you train them. You replace that. So when Elizabeth and Emma won't come to me, I say, Daddy says, come here. They don't come. I discipline them, and we enact that again. I put them in the same spot. If they're lying down, I lie them down. If they're under a table, they're under a table. I step away where, where I was. I see the same thing. Elizabeth, come here. Emma, come here. To train them in righteousness. I don't just correct wrong behavior. I want to correct in right behavior. So we, we, we reenact that scene several times. They're trained in righteousness. What the right attitude is. What the right decisions are. What the right behavior is. Law of replacement. That's the idea of paideia. So raise them up in the discipline of the Lord and in the instruction of the Lord. The word is nutheo. The idea is admonition. It's instruction. It's putting it into the mind of the child, teaching them the whole counsel of God's word. Right. So it's foundational instruction, corrective discipline. It's that uh, uh, the two pillars of parenting. Same thing in the church. We give you the Word of God, expository preaching, week in and week out, flock Bible study, to teach all of us what the Word of God says, what the lines are, what the rules are, and what the punishment for sin. Right? And then we have corrective discipline. If we discipline our church members without explaining lying is wrong, right? stealing is sin, Right? Slander is uh, offense to God. Then it would, if you were not taught these things, it would provoke you to anger. We have to do both in the church and in the family as well. We tell our children what God's Word says. What is righteousness and what is unrighteousness? So that when we do discipline them or praise them for righteousness, it makes sense in light of their paradigm of God's Word. That's the responsibility of parents where there, 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 oh, there must be, but really there must be, but I'm not saying must in a must way, but really there must be, if you love your family, a formal time of family worship, whether it's once a week, twice a week, every night, a formal time. If you say, no, that's not necessary, that's like saying church is not necessary. I'll worship God on the Internet. You know, I'll worship God driving in my car. I don't need a church. Right? Well, that's God's will. Same thing in the family. That's the first church. So there must be some formal time where you sit down together and simple. Right? Pray. Simple. Right? You sing to God. You worship God. And you read scripture. Right? Just do those three simple things. Your husband and wife start now. Just with your husband and wife. You sing, pray, and read. You have a child. Right? Two months old. Start. You know, shorter time of sing, pray, and read. Right? They're 12 years old, you can have a little longer time and sing, pray, and read. There must be formal time in the Word. That is the foundation for informal time. Deuteronomy 6. Right? Teach them diligently to your children. Talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Find them a sign on your hand. Front net between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So wherever you're going, whatever you're doing with your children, you're always reflecting on the glory of God. Reflecting on the truth of God's Word. You're always interacting with them from a God-centered perspective. Talking about His goodness, His holy character, His righteous deeds. Interacting with them with the Word of God. Well, application. I have several applications. No second hour, so I kind of leisurely go through the applications. Right? So I have like seven pages left. So. First of all, number one, um, J- Pastor Jason taught this last night, Galatians 6.9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The idea of sowing and reaping. And the idea of induced season. The idea of there are seasons of time that God has allotted to us. Right? It's the Bible's understanding of time. There's two Greek words for time. Chronos and Kairos. Chronos is more familiar to us. That's the world we live in. Chronology, chronicle. What's the other word, right? Um, chronic. 
It's a time of calendar and time of the clock. It is the forced march where time continues on, moment by moment, hour by hour, day after day. It is our view of time. Today is September 3rd, 2006. Tomorrow is September 9th. You know, I'm 36 years old. Next year I'll be 37. This is our view of time. My daughter is four, will be five. This is our chronos time. But the Bible doesn't talk, emphasize that kind of understanding. The Bible emphasizes the idea of kairos time. It's the idea of time as a gift, as an opportunity, as a season. And kairos time is pregnant with purpose. Pregnant with purpose. So in kairos time, you don't ask what time is it. You ask, what is this time for? You ask, what is this time for? You don't ask Sunday 9 a.m. No, you ask, what is this time for? Oh, it's time for worship. It's Kairos opportunity for us to hear God's word, to pray, to worship with the saints. Right? You don't ask, how old are you? Right? But what season of life are you in? It doesn't matter how old you are, but right now, what season? Are you in the sowing season? Are you in the watering season? Are you in the pruning season? Or are you in the harvest season? Those are the important, that's the important understanding. Not how old is your child, but what season of opportunity is it for your child? That's the idea. That's why Ecclesiastes 3, there is a time for, to, to be born and a time to die. For every matter under heaven, there is a season. Be born, to die, plant, to plug, to kill, to heal, break down, to build up, weep, laugh, mourn, dance, so on and so on, war and peace. There are seasons of life. These are kairos opportunities, kairos seasons. They're pregnant with purpose. But you miss that time, you can't get it back again. At chronology time, you can make up later for missed time. You can double your efforts but not Kairos time. You miss this opportunity, it's gone forever. Right? Do you understand? You know, I tell, I tell our premarital couples, your honeymoon, that's Kairos opportunity. Once in a lifetime, where you're alone with your bride, you just got married, everything's new, you have that week to a month together, right? A week together. That's Kairos. That's it. And you can never get it back. Oh, no, no, we're going to come to Hawaii again. Oh, no, no, we're going to go to Catalina again. No, 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 I don't care how many times you go to Hawaii, it'll never be the same, right? And some of you have done that, it's not the same. Why? Because you have that one opportunity for you guys to spend that time rejoicing in Christ through your marriage, your life together, to pray, to read scripture, to just enjoy that time, reflect on your dating, reflect on your family, reflect on the wedding, and that's the kindest opportunity. And if you let that slip by, all you do is watch TV, all you do is, you know, read magazines and you waste it. You can't make it up. That's it. It's gone. You have that week. That's the Kairos opportunity. And likewise for the family. Now, for those of you, that's what Jason was saying last night for these singles. You guys are single. And this is your Kairos opportunity to exploit your singleness. And once that singleness is gone and you get married, it's over. Right? Life might begin, but life also ends, right? And you can't go back. So exploit this opportunity. For those of you who are married and without children, it's not a time for fun. It's not a time for leisure. It's not a time to just you know, spend your time and waste it away. It's time for sowing. It's time for work. It's time to set the foundations because if God grants you children... Man, that kind of opportunity is gone. Right? You can't tell your child, stop, you know. Stop growing or sleep for three weeks, you know. Let mom and dad, you know, read some books, you know. Can you, like, you know, stop for like a year and let mom and dad work on our marriage? No. Once your child comes, that's it. It's an opportunity for you to work on your marriage relationship. To build your family spiritually, relationally, financially. It's time for you to grow as a man, to grow as a woman. Will future be parents have authority over souls? For families here, you have young children. It's a kairos opportunity for you to teach them, to train them, 
to discipline them. But if you miss that opportunity and you're a passive, disobedient, worldly mom or dad, you're an absent dad, you're an absent mom, you're busy with work, busy with soap operas, or busy with ministry, busy with playing games, and you miss this Kairos opportunity, it's too late. You can't make it up. You can't do double time. Right? There is a sowing season, and then there is harvest season. If you miss the sowing season, then you'll not have a harvest. If you sow wrong things, you sow sin, you'll reap what you've sown. Because you had that opportunity, and if you missed it, too late. So, your child is 25 pounds, 3 feet tall, and you're not teaching them, you're not training, you're not disciplining, and your child becomes 6 foot 3, 17 years old, he's shaving, and he has 210 pounds, and he won't listen to you. He's an angry child, out of control. Right? You're getting knocks on the door, by the police department. You're getting calls from the principal. And you ask me, Pastor James, can you talk to my daughter? Can you talk to my son? My response is, you're 15 years too late. If she's not listening to you, if he's not listening to you, he's not going to listen to a pastor. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. It's too late. Brother, you've had that Kairos opportunity 15 years ago when that child was 25 pounds. Now that child is 250 pounds. Pride is out of control in his heart. The best you can hope for is it will just, just play itself out. And by God's grace, you know, he'll become like Pastor Joe John, right? By God's grace, he'll become Pastor James. But how many friends do we have where God didn't, by his will, didn't show grace? And they ended up in places that are very difficult, bring shame to father and mother because it's grace and works. Right. This is a Kairos opportunity for young families to be working right now. It's not harvest season. The harvest season, I saw it in John Smith Sr. Right? Four kids growing up, love him. He gets, you know, cards, love you, Grandpa, love you, Grandma, right? They get, like, cards and pictures of grandkids. You know, they go out for breakfast and have dates right, every day. They work a little bit, and they're like, ah, I'm going to end, end today and go for coffee with my wife, right? I'm going to go play catch with my dog. I'm going to play with my grandchildren. I'm going to go visit my uh, son and grandchildren in, in check. It's the harvest season. And he's harvesting. I mean, he's harvesting all over. And he's, he's reaping the profit of what he sowed when he was young. That season will come if we're diligent right now. But if you want to harvest now, it's far too early. Right. Second application is just think through in what ways are you provoking your children to anger? That list, lack of marital harmony, child-centered home, uh, Disciplining while angry, teaching while angry, inconsistent in discipline and training, double standards, legalism, reversing or not fulfilling God's roles, um, not, not being parents, outsourcing parenting to extended family or to strangers, not encouraging your child, not admitting you're wrong. These are all ways. How are you doing this right now? Thirdly, how are you doing as a spiritual leader of the home, as a father? How are you the men? Are you intimately involved in the raising of your children, of your child? Are you saying, oh, that's my wife's responsibility. That's her domain. You know what happens? If you uh, abdicate your role in that area and give that to your wife, your, your wife will just gain authority and strength and take over the whole family. As your children grow from infants, toddlers, the young children, the teenagers, she'll take over the whole house. And you know what you'll be doing? You'll be in the garage, you know, cutting wood, right? You'll be uh, just bag- taking groceries from the car to the refrigerator. Because in the house, you don't know what's going on. You don't know your children's names, right? You don't know how old they are. You don't know what's going on because 
your, your wife took over the authority, and as the kids grow, her domain grew, and you are just marginalized to just fixing the faucet, right? Unplugging the toilet, right? And so you're old, and you're just, you have no, you're just a shell of a man. You're a hollow man, and your wife has all this authority, and the children are listening to your wife, Listen to her, their, their mother and their uh, approving of her, and you're just there as like decoration, right? If you abdicate your responsibility over children, you have to be involved in every area of your child. And so the wife you need to step back. I know, I don't know. Man, when I, I don't know how like, to change diapers, feeding kids. I, I, I have no knowledge of children. But that's why all the mom, my wife had to help me, defer to me and saying. You know, that's one way to change the diaper, James. How about doing it this way, right? How about doing it the right way? That's one way to feed a child. But how about, you know, warming the water before you feed, you know, ice cold water, whatever, formula. You know, the wife has, knowing the husband is playing out of his position, defer to him all the more. But really, the husband has, to, we have to put our foot in. We have to assert ourselves. We can't be, my job is ministry. My job is work. You take care of the household. And then we'll see, you know, we'll meet at the end. We'll see each other in 30 years. No. Management of the house. That's why, right, ministry in the church is directly tied to ministry at home. If a man can't manage this home, if a man can't manage his own wife and children, he has no business doing any kind of leadership, any kind of ministry in the church. Right? So, men, how are you doing? Providing leadership at home. And then finally, for the women, for wives, for moms, for children, some ways to encourage your dad, encourage your husband. Pray for your husbands. I mean, really pray for your husbands. With your children, pray for your husband. Let's pray for daddy. You know, it's hard. It's so hard. You know, don't, don't look at being a leader as, oh, what's so hard about being a leader? Ah, oh, being a husband is easy. You know, people say that, Pastor, what do you really do during the week? Right? You know, do you do work? <laughs> like, what, what do you do? Because oh, being a pastor, we always just go up there and just talk and sing some songs and, you know, talk to people. People say, don't you understand, being a leader is so hard. It's so difficult. So as wise, if with your pride, you look at your husband saying, oh, being a husband is easy. I could do that. Way better than him. Like, that's pride. That's wrong. That's sin. And that's not even true. Being a husband is so difficult. It's the most difficult job in the world. It's the loneliest place in the world. And being a father is so difficult. So what they need from you is prayer. Prayer, support, affirmation, acknowledgement, and understanding I can't be the leader. It's too hard, hard for me. Honey, only you can do it. Only the man can truly lead me and lead our family. Right? Respect Him. Honor Him. Respect Him for the man He wants to be. Maybe He's not all that He should be right now. Right? Maybe He's dropping the ball a lot. You know, He's making a lot of mistakes, and He's failing. If you knew the thousand and one ways I fail every week, I could not be preaching. But the man that I want to be and the man that your husband wants to be. Because of that, give him honor, give him respect, and trust him. Respect him by listening to him. Listening to him. Right. Honor him by appreciating him and uh, by needing him. Just say by saying, articulating it, and living it out, I need you as my husband. Right? Our family needs you as the leader, as a father. We can't make it without you. We need you. Right? So important. Right? And then finally, encourage him to glorify God. Encourage him to glorify God. And finally, they exhort all the husbands to truly uh, display Christ in the family by making that a priority in your lives, to glorify God in and through your family. We'll close with this. One Christian father confessed, My family's all grown. The kids are all gone. 
But if I had to do it all over again, this is what I would do. I would love my wife more than my children. I will laugh with my children more also at our mistakes and our joys. I will listen more to the, even to the littlest child. I will be more honest about my own weaknesses, never pretending perfection. I would pray differently for my family. Instead of focusing on them, I would focus on me. I would do more things together with my children. I would encourage them more, bestow more praise. I would pay more attention to little things like deeds and words of thoughtfulness. And then finally, if I had to do it all over again, I would share God more intimately with my family. Every ordinary thing that happened in every ordinary day, I would use to direct them. Father, we do love you and thank you so much for your word. It is because of your word we're not stumbling around in darkness. We're not blown and tossed by the waves, helpless from the uh, earthly, temporal, foolish ideas of this world. It is because of your word, a word which is a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet, we know your will for us for us to have life and have it abundantly so that we might know the joy of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures, for removing the scales from our eyes and that so that we would know what season it is, what kairos season it is that as relatively younger men and women, men and women, in so many ways starting out in life, time for us to sow. time for us to be diligent. It's time for us to have the right priorities and feverishly, fervently give our full efforts to true godliness. Knowing that in due season we will reap. We do not lose heart. We do not give up. Lord, we pray and ask you, O God, that you would cause a repentance, a changing of minds in, in all of our hearts, in each heart, each man, woman, husband, wife, mother, father, you would change hearts through Ephesians 6.4. You would do the work through the Holy Spirit that each of us would resolve again to uh, be sources of righteousness. Lord, we uh, thank you for married families of our church. We pray for the singles that are studying the word and engaged in ministry of growth. Oh, Lord, help us all to grow together as one body of believers, the head who is Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.